Welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. I'm your host, Josh Miles. I'm a brand strategist at Miles Herndon, a branding agency in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. Today on Obsessed with Design, we have a bit of a greatest hits episode that I'm tentatively calling Five of the World's Best Female Designers Share Their Best Advice, Part 1. Today we'll hear from Paula Scher, Debbie Millman, Amy Hood and Jennifer Hood, Robin Ray, and Danielle Evans. Let me know if you like these kind of episodes, and if so, we might do more of them. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with five of the world's best designers who just happen to be women. What conversations could I have forever and never get bored? That was the question I asked myself constantly as I developed the concept for my new podcast, Obsessed with Design. From the time I heard my first podcast, ironically enough, it was Design Matters with Debbie Millman, a woman I would later interview for my own show, I knew I wanted to host my own someday. The tricky part was figuring out what the subject matter should be. That's when I started thinking about it some more and bouncing ideas off of friends and coworkers. I spent the last 14 years running a branding agency, and the idea of talking to the world's best design minds across multiple disciplines was fascinating. I wanted to get inside their heads and figure out what made them tick. So still in its infancy, all of the episodes that I'm going to share with you today were in the first 20 episodes of the show. This podcast has allowed me to interview dozens and dozens of great designers, including some of the most influential female designers in the world. Surprisingly, it wasn't that intentional that I went out of my way to find the best women in the industry. I wasn't even thinking about how to get a good mix of men and women. I just wanted to talk the best designers. And it turns out a lot of them are very talented women. So this has given my podcast an incredible diversity of perspective from the emotional side of Debbie Millman to the practical side of Robin Ray. I've been blown away by some of the wisdom that I've learned from these ladies, and I can't wait to share it with you. Always start with identity, Paula Share. So if you're not familiar with Paula Share, she's a design legend. She was the first female principal at Pentagram, and her designs are staples of American culture, and her TED Talk is required viewing for anyone in the marketing or design community. Here's a little on how she found her way into graphic design, her thoughts on specialization, and why she believes all design starts in the same place, identity. What kind of drove you into the the graphic design world in the first place? Well, it was the only thing that I was good at in college. I wasn't even that good at it, but I was good. I was better (laughs) at it than I was at everything else. So yes, that's what drove me. You know, it was, it was uh, sort of finding myself to be someone who really didn't draw all that well, understood and liked painting, but not particularly distinguished at it. Um, uh, terrible at crafts, you know, things like metals and, Mm -hmm. um, pottery, horrible, horrible. And, uh, graphic design was, um, about ideas and that was better for me. Well, I think transitioning from, uh, the idea thing I think is huge, but I, I think transitioning from the the world of design or art school and getting into album art and then into the world of branding. I mean, that seems to be um, a really great segue for you as far as the idea thing goes. I think that it was easier to make certain kinds of moves and transitions 40 years ago than it is now. 
mm-hmm. and um, things that I look at and think, my God, how did I ever do that? Well, yeah, I was lucky. Yeah, I think um, especially for the the Gen X generation, which I'm part of, you know, all of the kids coming out of school were saying, oh, I just want to like go design CD covers and work with bands. And um, it's it was never a very, you know, super realistic career for someone who's, you know, in 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 the Midwest or something. But so cool for you to jump straight into that that industry out of school. Well, it wasn't a super realistic career for me either. Um, I mean, you had to be a New Yorker in LA to do that. Mm-hmm. You can't, you can't do it from the Midwest. I mean, there were certain things that I did, which helped me, which was move to New York. I'm not a native New Yorker. I moved here. It was a direct choice. And I moved here because I thought I'd have broader opportunities than I would in Washington, DC or in Philadelphia. And that's true. So how did you get introduced to Pentagram in the first place? I understand you came on in the early 90s, I think. In 1991, I joined. They asked me to join in 1990. I moved to New York in 1970 with about $50 in a portfolio. And I worked for 10 years, uh, mostly in the music industry. And then I started my own firm that was called Copel and Share with uh, somebody I went to college with named Terry Coppell. And he was an editorial designer and we designed um, magazines and this sort of promotional and advertising pieces for youth-oriented companies, which was the sort of work I got after I was in the music industry. In the late 90s, we hit, in late 80s, we hit a very bad recession and Terry took a job at a magazine and I was working on my own. And at that point in time, uh, a partner, Pentagram, a, a man I'd known for, I would say, about 12 years named Woody Pirtle came and asked me if I would be interested in joining. And I knew the partners of Pentagram, the ones I did know, I knew through the AIGA where I was active and I was on the board in um, 1982. So my relationships with these people go quite back pretty far. Yeah, very cool. Uh, Lots of the guests that we've interviewed have talked about their, their AIGA connections. Really I, I very much owe so much of my professional life to the AIGA because I made, I, when the, in the record industry, everybody in the record industry was a, a music person. It was a music business and, mm. and people were much more passionate about music than they were in design. Many designers I know who were terrific in the music industry really once they left the industry and they were record cover designers, they really couldn't find their way doing anything else. And it was because they were so specialized to that industry. I never was. I wanted to be a graphic designer. I didn't, that I was in the music industry was great, but that wasn't my first call. Well, that's uh, an interesting thought. Uh, Obviously, are you still teaching at SVA? Yes. I Um, teach a senior portfolio class. Cool. So, you know, given your own experience, what do you tell the students today when they say, should I specialize or should I be broad or, you know, where, where, how are you coaching young designers and students today? Well, I, I teach uh, identity and I believe that identity is one of the secure, securest places to begin to work because if you can understand and master identity, it means that you can do a really broad base of work because to design an identity effectively, 
you have to communicate in every channel. You have to be uh, somebody who can design form. You could be. You have to be somebody who can play on a communication system. You have to be somebody who can make um, a design function on every single level, whether it's digital or it's um, three dimensional. It involves every part of design. So when you learn that, you learn everything. And of course, at least from from what I can tell in the public, that identity still is is a large part of what you're doing at Pentagram, correct? Totally. I mean, I describe myself as an identity designer. I think it's where everything begins. And I, I love, um, you know, kind of like the number series or, you know, you've, you've had so many cool poster and outdoor applications as well. But I, I feel like your, your touch as an identity designer is really what informs where you go with those um, visual identities as well. That's right. So how do you judge, how do you personally score if, if you've done a great job with an identity project, what, what tells you if it's been successful or not? Um, it's hard to tell um, until it's been around for a couple of years. You know, identity systems have to live in the public. That's why I'm very much against people who do instant criticisms on blogs about identities, because it really takes a period of time for the public to absorb it and also for the identity to correct itself in public. You know, everybody now writes about Shake Shack because it's perceived as a successful identity, but it was designed 10 years ago. It just, it just because of the nature of the fact that it contemporized the view of what uh, a fast, casual dining experience was, it's, it becomes very relevant now. And I don't know how it would have been judged 10 years ago if anybody bothered to. Thank God they didn't. <laughs> I, I think it's, um, you know, the, the good news or bad news is that new identity really signals to the market that something's different or you should, should take notice or pay attention to it. But, you know, that's the, the double-edged sword where you have the world where people are instantly criticizing and even seeing some, some brands completely backpedal uh, on a new identity release when they have that kind of feedback. Well, I think that that's, you know, not everybody cares that much. <laughs> you know, there are a bunch of people who get on, you know, who who go online and blog about it and make a big noise about it. And then six months later, everybody forgets about it anyway. I mean, there's some things that have been uh, pulled back and there are some things that have failed, but mostly things haven't. Throughout my interview with Paula, she discussed her process and how she's designed effective brand identities for her clients. From the Museum of Modern Art to Microsoft, her design prowess has allowed her to work with some of America's most prestigious brands, but her wisdom could be applied to even the smallest business. If you start with identity, you can always scale down, but not all visual elements scale up. What about helping a client understand the work that you've done and how to get them to approve great work? That's what this next clip is about. Well, if somebody can't respond to anything, it means I didn't ask the question right. Um, initially, and I got it wrong, mm-hmm. or the person is going to be difficult all the way through the process. I mean, uh, I think a designer's key job is to to teach a client how to see. And so, at the moment that you've un- you've unveiled a a number of of um, options to a given client, if they can't see anything, you haven't done your job right. If you'd like to hear the full conversation between Paula and I, head over to iTunes and listen to episode number eight of Obsessed with Design featuring Paula Share.
Up next, my learnings from episode number one of Obsessed with Design featuring Debbie Millman, all about managing your time and not letting your time manage you. If you're new to design, the first person you should look up is possibly Debbie Millman. Debbie may wear a million different hats. Okay, maybe it's not exactly a million, but she's a writer, educator, artist, and brand consultant, not to mention host of Design Matters, one of the top podcasts on Apple's collection. But above all else, she's an inspiration for designers around the world. Over the past decade, Debbie's become one of the most well-recognized designers in the country, but this wasn't just because of her work. Instead, it's due in a large part to her ability to crank out high volumes of extremely high quality everything she touches. To most designers, the idea of producing the same quantity of work that Debbie and her team have produced in the past few years is mind-numbing. I don't even know where to begin, you might ask yourself. So for Debbie, it came down to great time management skills. Here are a few tips from Debbie on how you can improve your time management. First, a little about the background of her podcast, Design Matters, and her books. So if you're familiar with both, you'll certainly see her personality woven between them. If there is possibly anyone listening to this show who's not already subscribing to Design Matters, you're making a giant mistake. So please, <laughs> please subscribe to Design Matters. Or if you want to be on it, gmail.com. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Um, you know, you mentioned a little bit about some of the books that you'd like to do. And of course, I love, love all of your books as well, which are, you know, so many of them are kind of a long form extension of what you've done with Design Matters. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Was it was it the book that the book ideas that drove you to the interviews, or was it the the interviews that got you thinking maybe I should write a book, or maybe you've been writing all along? I don't know, but tell us about about well, your there's, writing. There's a couple career. of interesting intersections. Um, the first is um, I started Design Matters, and I started doing the interviews um, in 2005. I took a class with Milton Glaser, a summer intensive at the School of Visual Arts, which fundamentally changed my life. The class, um, he's, he's talked about this class as one of the most important things that he does. It profoundly influenced me and changed my life. Um, in that class, we had to really take a stand for what we wanted our lives to mean. And in that class, I, I, realized that even though I was, had just begun to do design matters and it was enormously creatively fulfilling, there were so many other things that I wanted to do and wasn't doing. And so I started thinking about how to go about doing those things and realized that, um, it wasn't like I was getting a ton of opportunities to just come to me with the words here, would you like to do this? And realized that I had to, I had to go out and actively make these things happen. And so I met with Steve Heller and I put myself out there in a way and I, I asked people if I could do this or do that and started to make things happen, not to wait for things to happen. And at the time, I had two book ideas that I uh, ran by Steve. He didn't think they were particularly good, but told me to keep working on it. He then recommended me to his publisher when they offered him the book, How to Think Like a Great Graphic Designer. Um, which he passed on. Mm -hmm. And when I was offered that book, it wasn't an interview style book, but I was able to persuade them because fundamentally I felt like a book showcasing how great graphic designers think, which felt like it would be more like a menu wasn't something that would be compelling because there is no one way that 
any Mm -hmm. great person thinks. So I sort of turned it on his head. I wanted it to be more of an ironic title, which I think people still have a problem with. Um, (laughs) But I wanted to show that there is no one way that great graphic designers think and interview 20 great graphic designers and showcase the myriad ways in which they think. Um, So that became my first book. But in the meantime, I had written to How Magazine to Megan Patrick, who was the then acquisitions editor. She worked at both the magazine and was the acquisitions editor at F&W, which owned print or owns print. And I created a sample visual essay and sent it off to her. Didn't hear back anything for six weeks. Decided that because I didn't hear no, maybe there was still an opportunity and wrote her again and asked her if she'd ever gotten this email that I'd sent. She immediately responded and said she hadn't. Didn't surprise me. It was a gigantic file and I'm also a bit of a Luddite. And (laughs) so I resent it. She confirmed that she got it, thought it might be a stretch for the editorial board at F&W. It wasn't really in the sort of centerpiece of what they do, but that she would try to, um, see what she could do. A couple of weeks later, she wrote me back. She said the editorial board approved it. I wrote her back and said, that's a miracle. She wrote back and said, yes, Debbie, indeed it is. And so (laughs) that became Look Both Ways. And then after Look Both Ways, when I started Look Both Ways, the only uh, visual essay I had done in 10 years was the sample essay. And so over the course of doing Look Both Ways, my chops improved. I had been working new muscles that I hadn't used in a decade. Uh, By the time I finished the book, my muscles were a little bit more well-developed. And as a result, kept going back to the beginning of the book and redoing the essays. Finally, Mm -hmm. at a point, my my editor and the publisher cut me off. They're like, okay, that's it. The book is going to (laughs) press. I didn't want to give up the chop. So I continued to do a monthly visual essay for print.com. And then uh, Gary... Uh, Lynch, the publisher, asked if I'd be interested. Actually, it was Michael Silverberg, the then editor, asked if I'd be interested in doing another book of essays. And then Gary Lynch, the publisher, decided he wanted to make it into a coffee table book. And that's how Self-Portrait as Your Trader came about. And, And Josh, it's interesting because all of these things, one thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And creativity is a journey. And every step on that journey contributes to the step both before and after it. And, and I very much feel that that's been one of the themes of my life. Next, let's talk about Debbie's thoughts on time management, delegation, and how to improve. So maybe this is the question that's in a lot of listeners' minds right now, which is, I think you just described like six or seven different professions at least. And, uh, and you do all of these things. So how do you, how do you make that work? How do you find the time in the day and how do you, how do you do so much? Well, um, one thing I do want to say is that you don't find time, you make time. And if you want to do something, you do it. I often say that busy is a decision and you decide how busy you want to be or not. You make time to do the things that you want to do. If you don't make the time, my guess is that they're really not a priority and it's just something that you tell yourself you'd like to do. But if you're not doing it, then how much can you really possibly want to do it? Now, there's a big caveat here, and that is I do not have children. 
I do not have a, a husband or a wife. And so I have a lot more time than most people that have those commitments and those, those, those areas of their life where they're, they're putting a significant amount of time and commitment. So my life is a little bit more elastic than most. And, but that being said, I'm extremely good at time management. And I also am not afraid to ask for help and engage other people in the process of collaborating and contributing. And I'm also a huge sleeper. I like to sleep between seven and eight hours every single night. Mm -hmm. And that provides, I think, a clarity and an energy that you can't get if you aren't putting in the horizontal sleep time. I like, <laughs> I like a lot of REM sleep. I'm there with you. Yeah. I'm uh, a sleepaholic. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't always work out, but I try to get even a little bit more in on Saturday morning. Oh yeah. I could sleep for 10 hours at a time, Josh. Easy, <laughs> easy. I remember one, one holiday I was in Israel and I slept 12 hours a day for a week. And wow. it was blissful. I went to bed at midnight and got up at noon. It was amazing. I feel like the jet lag helps with the yes, encouraging yes, the sleeping. That's true. That's true. There are a lot of great nuggets in this interview, and I cannot stress enough how amazed I was after I finished doing this particular interview. I would strongly encourage you, if you found value in those clips, to head over to iTunes and download episode number one of Obsessed Show with Debbie Millman. Be aggressive and get yourself out there. Amy and Jennifer Hood. Amy and Jennifer Hood are two of the nation's most promising up-and-coming minds in the design space. As co-founders of Hood Spa Design Company, they have a passion for mentoring young designers. Both of them teach at the college level, and they love to invite their colleagues to guest lecture. This provides students with a rare glimpse into the real world of design, but they don't stop there. Here's a little clip of them talking about their teaching adventures and advice for students on how to leverage social media. So are you both still teaching right now? Yeah, so we just actually wrapped up um, finals last week, and that was pretty exciting. We teach a class called Professional Practices, which I always think is kind of funny because it's definitely very subjective, right? Everybody's <laughs> idea of professional, and we are definitely more lax when it comes to like old school professionality. You know, um, we wear jeans with holes in them, and you know, I mean, I think it's just very subjective. Um, but generally, the class is just us preparing them to not be like dipshits in the workplace. Really, is what we like to say. It's like, hey, <laughs> be a decent human. Like, um, know how to look engaged. Know how to be engaged. You know, I think the big thing too is just like having them feel confident and starting to just push them and make them get out there and start uh, contacting people outside of school. Yeah. So we'll bring in a lot of our friends to come and talk and do little lectures. And then we'll like force them to tweet that person <laughs> throughout the week mm -hmm. or force the students to tweet the person. Um, a lot of forced tweeting, actually, just making them interact with people because we can't make them go to events outside of school time, but we can assign tweeting homework. Yeah. And we found that Twitter is such an easy way to connect them. Uh, with people that are way above and beyond what they think they can reach, but it's an underutilized, you know, medium. Totally and if is. you have something good to say, it's so easy to stand out because most people are just liking or retweeting or favoriting, or I guess it's the same liking and favoriting. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. So it's a lot of that. And then it's just helping them get their online portfolio and um, kind of giving them a heads up for, you know, what people look for, for good employees and things like that. Mock interviews, which scared the hell out of them, but then they realized that they totally killed it. So <laughs> most of it is like dispelling this thing that um, 
I think a lot of times in school, they kind of are trying to get you to think that until it's perfect, don't show anyone until you're perfectly ready. Don't go out. But it's Mm -hmm. like, no, no, no. Just get out there. Start to fail. Start to (laughs) figure it out. And as long as you're not kind of running in a rut and going in circles, and as long as you're like critiquing yourself and getting better, then just get out there and start, you know? What do you think has been the biggest surprise from teaching? how uh, much lack of uh, excitement there is. It's like, they're afraid to show you, you know how the whole thing about high school that you forgot about is that mm-hmm. like, it's not cool to be excited. <laughs> it's cool not to care, right? It's like whoever cares the least, it has the most power. <laughs> and even though they do care, you know they care because they're trying so freaking hard, you know? But um, they don't show it. And I think that's the most frustrating thing is like you want them to get excited and be proud of what they do. But that's probably the thing that they have the, the biggest trouble with is that showing confidence and passion in what they've done. Probably because they're waiting for you to say, no, that was wrong. Mm-hmm. Which is a lot of, you know, what you do in school is learning what's wrong. So yeah. I, and I also think it's hard um, that they're at the age, like we're only, you know, 29, just turned 29, just turned 29. <laughs> and... <laughs> clarifying. (laughs) Anyway, some of the students are only like one of our students is 27. One of them is 29 as well. So I think a lot of it is, um, they're still in the student mentality and I am expecting them to be like adults that are, you know, proactively thinking and doing. And so a lot of it is just encouraging them to be proactive and not wait for assignments, which is what school teaches you to do. And a lot of them are like that. I will say, I was actually impressed that they're all so talented. That's true. It's at Laguna College of Art and Design. And um, the school does have a great, they they make all these great connections with actual companies like Nike and Hurley, a lot of the local action sports companies and get them internships and get them in the workforce early, which is really amazing. amazing. Um, So a lot of these kids already are, well, and that's the other problem. All the teachers call them kids. So I started calling them kids, but they're freaking adults. That's that's (laughs) that's what I mean. It's the biggest problem is like the, the balance between giving them expectations so that you are treating them like an adult, but also remembering that they are still students. And so you can't expect too much and you, you still have to check in on them and be like, okay, are you doing that? Because I'll just give them deadlines. And I'm like, okay, this is due in three weeks. And then three weeks comes and everyone's like, Ooh, um, I forgot. <laughs> or whatever. And I'm like, I told you, like, you're supposed to write that in a planner, but you know, they just need, they need a little bit more encouragement. So I think it's, it's been a learning curve for us to, to learn to, I don't know, be a little bit more matronly, motherly. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the right way to say it is, but teacher. So you start to see like which students really are just naturally obsessed with design and which ones you really have to push and help them to discover it further. And some of them just may never totally get it in the same way that we do perhaps, but. No, definitely. Where do you think that came from for you? Like, when did you realize that you wanted to be a designer? I don't know. I think we always thought that it was like what we were doing was art. And then we realized when we got our first job, our first internship, which was also like, it was like a paid internship. It was a job and they taught us everything we knew. And then I was like, oh, okay. Design is much different than art because, you know, we're not just making everything we like just because we want to. There's a client involved and they have a huge say in what we do. And um, I don't know, but I, I think I always loved it. Um, because I just always loved art. We were always doing things. We were always had that entrepreneurial spirit of like, if you want to do something, make it, you know, don't Mm -hmm. wait for someone else to make it. So I think it was always kind of there. And then when, but that being said, I'm still not the guy who like, uh, or the girl who, um, gets like the design magazines and like freaks out over like, you know, I don't know what the little parts of type 
are. I don't like, and I don't really bother myself about it either. Like, I still don't know the correct term. Can we like, cut this out? <laughs> no, 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 but like, certain terms I'll never know correctly. I just call it like the space between the letters on the lines <laughs> because um, we didn't go to school the full time. And that's like a shortcoming of mine, but I've kind of just been like, <laughs> okay, I'd like to clarify though that I know those terms because I've been creating fonts. Well, one's, turning, one's turning, one's tracking, one's letting. I don't know. They're, but I just tell them those, the spacing looks wrong. Like I still know how to, you know, tell them what's what. But see, I have shortcomings too, but I don't obsess about it too much. I think it, to me, it's a little bit more like I know it internally. I just don't know mm-hmm. how to verbalize it, which is my own problem, which I should probably work on. <laughs> well, judging by your portfolio, I think you guys get it figured out pretty well in spite of maybe <laughs> not knowing the right word for which space. Much like your sister, Amy puts it bluntly when she talks to young designers, just get out there and start to fail. This is what has allowed the Hood Sisters to accomplish just so much so early in their careers. To hear the full conversation between the ladies of Hood Spa and myself, Head over to iTunes and listen to episode number three with Amy and Jennifer Hood. You don't need to be a technical wizard, Robin Ray. As a co-founder of Modern Dog Design Co., Robin Ray has a lot of familiarity with designing for big brands. Modern Dog is an internationally acclaimed design studio that creates imaginative, bold, and playful design in interactive and print media. Current and past clients include the Seattle Aquarium, Swatch, Coca-Cola, K2 Snowboards, HarperCollins, and Nordstrom. In this clip, Robin tells me about the growth of technology and how that played into her background. You guys just have a great aesthetic to, to so much of your work. And, you know, you've, you've done everything from these posters and cool, illustrative, hand-drawn kind of things. And that I think kind of reflect the the pre-computer time that you were learning in. But oh, yeah. also, um, you know, you also do some really great corporate identity work and branding and, and as you said, art directing photo shoots. And so where has, where do you feel like modern dog kind of got their, their stride as a company, like which of those swim lanes or was it the fact that you were doing a little bit of everything that was, that was so great? You know, I think we, we were doing, I mean, we've even done animation for Showtime. We've done, um, you know, websites, of course, a little bit of UX design, but, uh, I guess, you know, part of it, I have to say that a lot of like that fearless attitude came from my business partner. And sometimes it got us into a lot of trouble. Like we got into projects where <laughs> we really were just way over our head, but more often than not, it was a really healthy, um, attitude. He was just a fearless person where I was be in the background saying, I don't think we can do that. He'd go, of course we can. <laughs> so I would try to be the voice of reason. And he was just, he is a very optimistic person and, and really fear. He's a fearless designer. And so we, you know, I, we were in some ways, I, I, li- I love telling my students this because I teach and, and I, and um, a lot of them can't believe this, but I never, and neither did my partner. We never took a software class. And to this day, um, we just sort of, and I, and I've never taken a class to the, to this day, but we just kind of learned off the cuff. I mean, if you were there in the late eighties and early nineties mm-hmm. and you were watching the transition from doing everything by hand and doing paste steps and mechanicals, which I still love, you know, I still have my waxer because I still build things by hands, but by, by my hands, but, uh, 
it was a very uh, interesting time to be a designer because the technology was changing so quickly. And I think our first computer, we had to take a loan out and I think it was $12,000 and, and 5,000 of it was just for the monitor. Wow. And so people think we had to take a loan and it took years to pay that stupid thing off. Yeah, but exactly. you know, within six months or a year, there was something better, faster, cheaper. And it was like that for like, I don't know, the first seven or eight years of Macintosh. It was just so crazy. And I hated actually all that, buying all that equipment. <laughs> so we, I think, you know, when we had that one, the first computer that ended up costing us 12 grand because we had to finance it, um, we didn't, there was only one computer in the office for like four people. Uh, but my partner, you know, he just kind of dove right into it. He became, um, he, in the early nineties, he was really well known for, you know, for his work in Photoshop. He was doing a lot of 3d work, uh, before a lot of other people were kind of diving into that. He was just sort of figuring things out. And I remember we were, I can't remember the name of this, uh, conference we were at, but it was something to do with technology. It was still when some people were still on floppies. But we were at the World Trade Center and he was talking about, it was some sort of design conference and he was doing um, demos in Photoshop. And so I just remember those early days of the computer. And I think a lot of the work that was coming out looked really bad because people didn't know what they were doing. And yeah. a lot of Photoshop filters and a lot of like, you know, really and like funny mistakes. But there was also some good stuff coming out also. but. Um, I think maybe, you know, my initial hesitation for embracing the technology was just how ugly everything looked. At the, um, mm -hmm. And we really liked seeing handwork. Um, and so even to this day, I, you know, of course, I'm completely, you know, embracing Illustrator and InDesign. I can't live without them, but I still and my partner still incorporates a lot of handwork into the design. Robin also filled me in on her first really big client, K2 and how they landed that job in the early days of Modern Dog. The first three or four years were very lean, and then we got some really big, lucky breaks. Mm -hmm. um, and then one of those big breaks was with K2 Snowboards. And I always, looking back you know, on the past 29 years, I can say that it was K2 that really allowed us to actually become a company. So we, were with, we started working with them in 1989. Very cool. And you know, some of the clients that you've seen along the way between uh, K2, obviously, and some of the other ones with uh, the likes of Coca-Cola or the New York Times or uh, Warner Brothers. And you've you've had the opportunity to work with some really impressive brands. So tell us about how that K2 relationship got started. Well, again, it's another I love this story because I think a lot of people think that somehow I mean, I it, it was really just one of those things where it was just a happy accident. I was at a party. And I met this guy who was telling me about this new product K2 was making. And um, I thought he said, I thought he said skateboards or surfboards. I didn't know what a snowboard was. I'd never heard of a snowboard. And uh, Monday morning rolled around and there was myself, my business partner, Mike, and another guy at the time who was working with us. And uh, I was telling them about it. And they said, oh, we'll get on the phone and call him and see if we can do some work. And I knew that if I just called and, um, you know, just did a cold call, I'd probably get hung up on. So I called and the woman who answered, I told her that I had met this guy, Brent Turner, and he told me to call, which he didn't do. 
And she patched me through to this other guy who answered the phone and he said, oh yeah, you know, we've been waiting for your phone call. We have some work here for you. And I didn't, you know, at the t- I just sort of played along with it. And I, years later, I learned that the morning that I made that phone call, they were expecting a phone call from another design firm. And oh, I man. didn't, I didn't learn this for like two or three years. And, and th- at this point, we were well into our relationship with K2. And I always thought it might have been this company called Studio MD because people used to confuse us, uh, Studio MD and Modern Dog. So oh. I always joke around with those guys, Glemitsui and Jesse Dequila. I used to always say, hey, you know, and they're always like, hey, where's our kickback? But uh, <laughs> so, I mean, it was, you know, and then, of course, when they saw our work, um, we at that time in 1989, I don't think we even had any full color work in our portfolio. The only thing we really had were these seed packets. We were designing seed packets for this little company. And the guy did the, you know, the art director at the time, he did the worst thing that anybody, anyone could do when they're looking at your work. And he, he like zipped up the portfolio, which were, our portfolios back then were big because mm-hmm. this was before computers. And uh, he said, you know, if I'd seen your work, I would have never called you in. And there wow. was this really uncomfortable silence. And I was by myself. So, my, so the two guys in my office, which were completely lame, they made me go and try to get the work, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> I just, I told him, I said, you know, I, I know the work isn't up to what you were expecting, but if you just give us this opportunity... I promise I'll never bug you again. And so he kind of said, he kind of changed his commitment. And he said, look, I'm only going to hire you for a few ideas. And he changed the purchase order. And, and, um, you know, I went back to the studio and I, for the next three days, we just worked and worked and worked. And I think we did, we, we did over a hundred small ideas that were maybe eight inches. This is all by hand. Oh yeah. And then we did, I think 17 full-size mock-ups with, you know, the combination of copiers and doing things by hand. And then when I went back, he did that thing again, where he like put me in a room and I put out the hundred ideas. And of course there were like 99 bad ones and one good idea. But I, you know, (laughs) back then I thought volume would somehow impress him. He got really quiet. And so then I brought out the 17 big ones and he just, he came back with like some other people that he worked with. And he just said, you guys are like totally nuts to have done this in three days. And that was, we didn't work like that. You know, we didn't continue to show like a hundred ideas. It was kind of dumb. I guess we were just nervous, but um, <laughs> we ended up, you know, working with them for 10 and a half years and we did everything from, you know, packaging. That's also when we started writing advertising copy. Mm-hmm. Uh, art directing photo shoots, you know, brochures, uh, designing product, of course, snowboards. If you'd like to hear the full conversation between Robin Ray and myself, head over to iTunes and listen to episode number 11 with Robin Ray. Don't compare yourself. Danielle Evans. When you first start your design career, you're bound to be disappointed with some of the work you do. Early on, you will likely discover that having a keen eye for design isn't enough to create great design work of your own. That's completely normal. Today, Danielle Evans has made a name for herself as a food typographer. You heard me right, food typographer. Consequently, she's worked in just about every major brand imaginable. When Danielle started out, however, she had no real style or perspective in her words. She wasn't happy with her design work, and as a result, she found it extremely difficult to complete projects. First, 
Let's listen to Danielle talk about why she works with food. I was playing with paper. I was playing with like, you know, objects very minimally, but I decided really to jump into this idea of food um, because I told a friend once that I wanted my work to mean something to people and to speak to them in a way that wasn't strictly um, visually related. And she said, well, why don't you just, you know, you're drinking a cup of coffee. Why don't you just make something out of coffee? And so that sparked this interest. And I found food is cheaper than art supplies by a lot. <laughs> It's also more resourceful. Um, and so I started feeling very free and all of a sudden all of these interests combined into this, this weird career. And um, it wasn't until Alan Peters from Target had tweeted that they were looking for a lettering person to help them on a campaign and all these people had contributed their, their portfolios. And I was late. I was like three hours late. And I went, okay, the internet dictates that this project is over by now. It's awarded and it's already done. Mm -hmm. uh, There's no way I'm going to get this. But I took a risk, which wasn't really much of a risk. I was just, you know, putting my work out there and seeing what happened. And Alan called me and was like, you know, we want to do this project with you. How soon can we talk about this? When can you get here? And so that job sparked this as my career. And so I've been very fortunate to continue doing this. It's been about three years, a little more than that now. And yeah, I'm very, very happy with, with what I'm doing and excited to keep moving. And you know, we couldn't get out of an episode without asking someone what they're most obsessed with right now. Most of our guests are what we would classify as obsessed at some level with design, which is sort of the point of the name of the show. Yes. <laughs> so what would you say that you are most obsessed with right now? I think for me, um, I saw a photograph floating around somewhere online and it was this image of order. Like the, it was just like a bundle of, I think flowers or, or fruit or something where it was just like, this is order. And it just looked like someone spilled it on the table. And then next to it was a contrasting image with all of the separate pieces kind of set out neatly in a grid. And it said, it was labeled as chaos. And so I, I'm really enjoying this idea of like the natural order of the world is to be kind of wild and organic and a little sloppy. And I think it's really fascinating that we as people come in and we apply some sort of precision mm -hmm. and structure and intention to the things that we surround ourselves with. And so that idea is moving me right now because I feel like Oftentimes we have it backwards. Yeah. You know, we are the ones creating chaos always, but it's a chaos that we understand. And so I like this, this idea of like a gale force of purpose. <laughs> I think there's a Yoda quote in there also. <laughs> Probably. <yeah. laughs> and the challenge of finishing projects and her take on style. You said something uh, a minute ago that I want to come back to. And mm -hmm. you said, so I was at the point where I wasn't editing something so hard that I'm not finishing it anymore. So was, mm -hmm. was this an issue for a little while that you were spending too long in the editing stage? And what did, what that look like? Like, how'd you free yourself up, up from that? Yeah, that was exactly it for several years while I was working all these shitty jobs. I was not, my self-confidence was so low that I'd start projects and I just wouldn't finish them. I'd be like, this is garbage. You can't decide on, 
on how this is supposed to look. You're going through a million iterations on Illustrator and you can't pick one path and follow it. And so I, I was like really frustrated. And it's when I started kind of thinking over, well, what do I, what am I so afraid of? I, I'm afraid of not being good enough. And of course, I'm comparing myself to like extremely well-known people and their skills and being disparate and <laughs> devastated that I can't match that. And so once I kind of relaxed in the fact that I wasn't going to be as good as them, that was, that freed me up. Um, I realized that I was fighting to be a vector, kind of a vector letterer. Mm -hmm. And that's not my skill. Um, It's too precise. I have too many options and the moves are are cheap for me. Like I can change my mind all the time and there's no consequence. I can just make a bazillion iterations and of course nothing gets done. So I realized that was not helpful to me. So I had to move into like a, almost like a fine art design kind of situation where I might ruin something, but at least I would be thinking very hard about every move I made. I learned to celebrate my peers as they were improving. And it's funny how much this isn't necessarily related to the process of making the design, but it's simply just finding that it was okay to be me. And it was okay to make the mistakes that I like making, the things that aren't technically correct because it gave me a style. Like I say, style is a series of like calculated errors. And so I, I think <laughs> it is, <Love> it. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> so I find like learning to celebrate that was really important. I wanted to be proud of, of what I thought was cool. And so once I became more comfortable doing that, then it was like, okay, well, no one is doing this weird thing um, where they're using food and it's like very, typographically driven. It was like very, I saw like maybe two or three people doing this and it was like, I I didn't have the design history. So I, Mm -hmm. I had no idea who could even possibly be out there doing this. It was just me searching online being like, I can't find anything and it doesn't have a name. So I'm going to give it a name and I'm going to make it something I pursue. That was, that was really it. To hear the full conversation between Danielle and I head over to iTunes and listen to episode number 20 with Danielle Evans. I've been thrilled over the past 77 episodes to interview so many talented designers. I've talked to world-renowned illustrators, graphic designers, branding experts, city planners, UX designers, and product designers. My goal is to get inside their heads and see what makes the world's best designers tick. If you know an architect or designer or interior designer or illustrator that I should talk to, tell them about Obsessed with Design. Also, let me know if you like this week's episode in this style, and we'll think about doing more of them. Okay, boys and girls, episode number 77 is in the books. Do me a favor this week and be sure and tell a friend about the show. And next time you're on the Twitter, let me know who you think we should interview next. I'm at Josh Miles, and we are at Obsessed Show. Also, sign up for my list and get thoughts on brand strategy delivered to your inbox. Visit milesherndon.com slash josh. Obsessed with Design is a product of the Design Obsessed team at Miles Herndon, a branding agency in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. Our show is always edited by Jen Eds at the Brassy Broadcast Company. Visit brassybroad.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.